Well, as some of you know, we are having a spiritual practice emphasis this winter and spring. And so what that means is that every month we are going to highlight a, a certain spiritual practice, an ancient spiritual discipline to work on and grow in as a church family. So the first, the first Sunday of the month or the second Sunday of the month, depending on how time works, I'm going to preach on one spiritual discipline, one spiritual practice. And then in community groups and as individuals, we're going to resource you with things to help you practice that spiritual discipline throughout the month. And then on the off weeks, I'm going to preach the book of James. So starting next week, we're going to be into the book of James. And that's kind of going to be our standard go-to for preaching. But then once a month, we're going to do one sermon on spiritual practices and resource you to do those spiritual practices because it's our belief that as a church we need to grow in doing the things that we know. We live in the age of information. We live in the age of podcasts, in the age of books, in the age of sermons, in the age of news. We live in the age where you can pull your phone out of your pocket and get all of the information you could possibly want. We have information overload, and in that, we often neglect or fail to practice the things that we already know. And so what we want to do this spring as a church is actually grow up into Christ-likeness as we practice the things that we already know. We know that reading the Bible is important for our spiritual formation. And so we want to practice reading the Bible together. Eric Hedstrom, our pastoral intern, has created a a great document, a great Bible reading plan for those of you who want to read the Bible, but but you've struggled and you've failed, check that out, get that resource. And so we talked a little bit about the big idea of spiritual practices last week, and today I want to dive into the spiritual practice of Bible reading and ask three questions. Why should we read the Bible? How should we read the Bible? And when should we read the Bible? Why should we read the Bible? How should we read the Bible? And when should we read the Bible? And so to start this, I want to look at the Bible. I want to start this sermon on the Bible by reading the Bible. And so I'm going to invite you to stand as I read these two passages for us. Starting with Psalm 19, verse 7 through 11. Psalm 19, verse 7 through 11 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Now flip over to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 through 13. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the attentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Lord Jesus, your word is living and active, and so I pray that as we look at it this morning and consider it this morning, that we would experience the living and active nature of your word. Amen. You may have a seat. Why should we read the Bible? Other than because your pastor told you to, 
or because your parents told you to, or because your Sunday school teacher told you to. Maybe you grew up in a religious environment where you knew, I'm supposed to do this, I'm supposed to do this, I'm supposed to do this. Or maybe you are newly checking out the Christian faith and you've heard people say, well, if you're curious about Christianity, read the Bible. If you want to grow as a Christian, read the Bible. So why should we read the Bible other than because people have told us to? I think these two passages give us some great information and substance for why you and I, for why anybody should read the Bible, especially those curious and interested in growing as Christ followers. A couple reasons why we should read the Bible. The first one is it finds us out and fills us up. The Bible finds us out and fills it up. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13 with me again. It says, For the word of God... The, the communication of God, the spoken word of God, the written word of God, the, the compiled word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning, I love this, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It, it finds us out. It, it fills us up. Verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him to whom we must give an account. See, Hebrews here is teaching us that the the word of God, the Bible, is living and active. It finds us out and it fills us up. It's unlike any other book. And maybe you, you, you've probably felt some, like, some kind of stirring or emotion as you've read poems or other literature or different things where it really connects. It's like that identifies something deep in me. That identifies something that I've been thinking through, that I've been wondering, that I've been wrestling through, and that helps bring it to light. But the Bible is that on a whole nother level. I love this story of a, of a professor at Princeton years ago. He was an atheist philosopher. His name was Emile Calais, and he married a Scottish Presbyterian, but he was an atheist. And so when they got married, he said, no Bibles in my home. I don't believe in Christianity, and she was, she was a watery Scottish Presbyterian, so she agreed to it. She said, that's fine. I'd rather marry you than hold on to my religion and bring my Bibles into our home. And so they got married. And they had no religion in their home because Emile Calais was an was a atheist, didn't believe in God. And years later, they had their first kid. And as Brooke, you'll find out, and all the other expecting moms, and those of you who are mothers, as you'll find out, those first couple months are are filled with this tender sweetness of holding your baby, helping your baby, and these frustrating moments, days, nights of sleeplessness, and not knowing what to do with this child, and also wondering, what's this child going to grow up to be like? I remember when I left home with Avery, our first daughter, and the, the nurse handed us this baby, I thought, I can't bring this child home and keep it alive, let alone ra- grow, it, grow her up. Hi, Avery. Let alone grow her up to be a Jesus-loving person. I don't know what I'm doing. I wanted to bring nurses home with me. Thankfully, I had Brittany. She's sane and stable. But what happened here is as Emil and his wife had their first kid, they both had those feelings of, I don't know what to do. I need inspiration. I need insight. And so Emil grabbed all of these ancient books and started combing through these different books and and he got a notebook and he would put all these different quotes, all these different self-help tips, all these different things into this notebook and this was supposed to be the source that when he was stressed out, burnt out, didn't know what to do, he was going to read this book and gain inspiration from it. His wife was out pushing the baby in a stroller one day and she happened to cross by a church 
And she knew what to do. She said, I, I need a Bible to root me. And so she went into the church. She asked the pastor for a Bible. He gave her a Bible. She brought it home, snuck it into the house, hid it. Emil was reading through his book and in his angst and trying to figure out how to, how to do life and how to raise a child. And, and this book of ancient quotes was leaving him empty and wanting more. And so one day he, he was putting it back on the shelf and he noticed the Bible that his wife had hid. And she tried to make excuses or reasons for why it was there. And he said, I, I don't care, I want to read it. And so he took it, he went into his study, started reading it, gave his life to Jesus, became a Christian, and he said, this book found me out. That was his words. As I read scripture, it found me out. It discovered me to myself. As I picked up the Bible and read God's word, it did exactly what Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13 tell us, that it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That, that there's no creature is hidden from the sight of God's word. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. As Emil started reading this book, he said, this, this finds me out and it fills me up. I begin to understand myself, my longings, my cravings, my sin, my shortfalls, my, the, the, the hunger, the desires of my heart. They begin to make sense as I read this word. It's living and active. Another one of my favorite stories comes from my friend Jordan Bornelson, who's preached here a couple times, works at Treehouse, and is the pastor of Foundations Church. He grew up in a non-Christian home, not exposed to Jesus at all. He, he told me that he didn't even know who Jesus was. Like, he, he remembers seeing images of a cross and a guy on a cross, and so he knew, oh yeah, that's Jesus, but he didn't know the story at all. We were actually at Walk in the Park having this conversation. And at Walk in the Park, they have like pictures of, uh, of like Oriental women, right? It's an Asian bistro. And I'm like, like, we don't know who that is. And we don't even think or question who that is. He's like, yeah, that, that's how Jesus was to me. It was just a, a person. And then when he was 19, he was, he was going through some life stuff and he picked up a Bible. And he started reading the book of Matthew. He said in one sitting, he read it from beginning to end. And he was weeping and crying. As they got towards the crucifixion, he was yelling out, don't kill him, he didn't do anything wrong, he didn't do anything wrong, as he was studying the life of Jesus. He knew nothing of the story of Jesus in the Christian religion. He picked up the Bible, started reading it, and God transformed his life. And now he's a pastoring a church. One of my favorite preachers to listen to because the word of God is living and active as he opened it and read it. God filled him with truth. God, God found Jordan out and filled him up. And church, this isn't just true for Emil Calais and for Jordan Bornelson. It's true for you and I as well. If you are a Christian here this morning, certainly reading God's word has played a role in that, a significant role in that. And if you are here this morning wanting to grow in your faith, wanting to grow in your relationship with Jesus, wanting to be stretched and informed spiritually, God's word is essential for that process. It finds you out and it fills you up. As verse 13 says, no creature is hidden from his sight. This could be kind of intimidating, right? No creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom you must give an account. What does that mean? It means that God knows everything about you. He knows all of your thoughts, all of your intentions, all of your actions. 
And as you read his word, he reveals to you your thoughts, your intentions, your actions, where they're right and where they're wrong. And then he shows you what's good and right and lovely. And what I want you to know this morning is that as God's word finds you out, that, that could be a scary thing if anyone else was to fully find you out. Think about even your spouse. If your spouse knew every thought, every intention, every judgment that you had and made, would you be okay and comfortable with that? I would be because I don't have any bad thoughts or intentions or actions. No, I would not be okay with that. I've been married for 14 years. I trust Brittany so much. But I still don't want her to know everything that goes on in my head and my heart. I want to hide certain parts of myself from her. But this is telling us that God knows every intimate detail about you and that ought not to scare you. You ought to let him into that space. How do I know this? Because look at Psalm 19. Flip back to Psalm 19 with me. As God's word finds us out, it doesn't expose, humiliate, and shame us. See, sometimes when we're found out, we're afraid of being humiliated or shamed. God's word finds us out, and it doesn't humiliate or shame us. It finds us out, and it fills us up. Psalm 19. Look at, look at the character and the subject and the result of Psalm 19. So Psalm 19, starting in verse 7, here's the, here's the subject, the law. God's law, God's word, God's commands. That's the subject. What is the character of his law? It's perfect. And the result of his law, it revives. Psalm 19, 7, verse B, what is the, the character or the subject? It's the testimony. It's, it's the word of God what is its character? It's sure. It's not questionable. It's not like fake news. It's not like Fox or CNN or CNBC. Or, uh, I don't know if I should believe this or not. No, God's testimony is sure, and it's full of wisdom. God's, God's word, it's his precepts, they're right, they're just, they're good. And they cause rejoicing. God's commandments are pure. And they enlighten the eyes. The fear of the Lord. So this holy fear, this holy reverence is clean and it endures. And his rules are true and they're righteous. Do you see how much you need this book in your life? In this last year, filled with so much conspiracy theory, so much fake news or questionable news or, or data that we're not sure how to interpret. This book says this, this book says that, this author says this, this author says that, this podcast says this, this podcast says that, this blog says this, this blog says that, this news site says this, this news site says that, these people seem reasonable, these people seem reasonable, these people seem wacko, these people seem wacko. I don't know what to do. You know what you need? You need God's word in your life. Because look at what it is. It's perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's clean, and it's true. Where else are you going to find that church family? Get this book in you. 
It finds you out and it fills you up. It roots you. It stabilizes you in a world that is so lacking roots and so unstable. Secondly, we should read God's word because it makes sense of the natural and supernatural world. And as we consider the events of the last year, that's nothing out of the ordinary. Riots? You may not be familiar with them. Those of you who have been around a little longer, you remember them from the 60s. Those of you born in the 80s like me or the 90s like some of you or even the 2000s. Riots? I heard about that happening in other countries. And now they came to our doorstep in 2020. It's nothing new. As you read the Bible, you're going to discover riots all over the place. Read the book of Acts. The followers of Jesus were involved in riots over and over and over again. Usually they were the reason for the riot. Nothing new. This book helps to make sense of the natural world. It also makes sense of the supernatural world. As you hear people talking about supernatural spiritual phenomenon, angel sightings, demon encounters, doors opening and closing, well, guess what? God's word has categories for that. There is an unseen realm. As we get to know God's word, it will make sense for us of the natural world, the things that we see, taste, touch, and smell. And it'll make sense, it'll help us to make sense of the supernatural world as we probe it, as we study it, as we get to know it, and as we allow it to get to know us. Thirdly, we should read the Bible because it's been tested and found to be reliable. As an ancient document, the Bible is one of the most reliable pieces of ancient literature that exists. You can go and research this on your own. Read The Case for Christ from Lee Strobel. Read um, Reasons for God from Tim Keller. Um, email me. I have a list of other books that you could look at or, or podcasts that you could listen to that have great info on this. But as an ancient document, the Bible stacks up unlike any other ancient document. Homer's Iliad. We learned that in school. You have to read that in school. It's not even questioned as whether or not it's, it's, it's a trusted ancient source of literature, right? It's a story, but it's not even questioned. There's 643 portions of original manuscripts of Homer's Iliad. The New Testament has over 5,500 in Greek alone and almost 24,000 total. It has far more reliability than Homer's Iliad. What about Plato? The Greek philosopher, they, they have like seven fragments or pieces of his original writings. Seven. 5,500 of the New Testament. What about Julius Caesar? Ten. 5,500 and counting. Aristotle. 49 fragments or portions of his original manuscripts or copies of his original manuscripts. The Bible, over 5,000 in Greek alone and 24,000 including other languages. It is a reliable book. Historians will not refute the reliability of the documents if they're honest. They may, they may dis, disagree with the claims that Jesus makes and the story that the Bible teaches, but as far as an ancient document, this book is reliable and trustworthy. And that's proven by secular scholars and by Christian scholars. All right, why should we read the Bible? That's a couple of reasons. Let's move on to the next question. How should we read the Bible? Practically speaking, okay, 
Now I know, I'm convinced I should read the Bible. I should commit in this upcoming year to read my Bible. But how should I do it? What does it look like? How should I get into this? Let me start by saying you should read the Bible with humility and expectation. You should read the Bible with humility because it's unlike any other book that you've ever read and will ever read because it's the Word of God. This book is more authoritative than you, than me, than any world system or government system or religious system, any pastor, author, podcaster. This book is more authoritative more authoritative than your own voice. And so it ought to be read with humility. It's the voice of God. It's the word of God. So read it with humility and expectation because God longs to speak to your soul and your heart as you open this book. It's not the only way he speaks to us. He speaks to us through community as we look at his word and wrestle with this, as we sing songs, as his Holy Spirit stirs in us. This is one of the primary ways that God speaks to his people. And so when you read the Bible, you should read it with humility, submitting yourself underneath the authority of the scriptures and having an expectation that God, your heavenly Father, wants to whisper into your ear words of reassurance and love. Or he wants to shake you out of your apathy and your hard-heartedness. Wherever you're at, God will meet you there and lead you to where he desires you to be in his presence where there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And he does it as you read his word. And so come to his word with expectation. Even if you're hard-hearted and dry and angry and bitter and you don't want to read it, I dare you, I encourage you to just open it up and say, God, I'm hard-hearted, I'm angry, I'm bitter, I don't want to read this, but I expect that you're going to break my hard-heartedness, that you're going, to, you're going to deal with my anger and you're going to open up my eyes because this is your word and I expect that you plan to speak to me and to meet me here. How should we read the Bible? With our head and our heart. Some people tend to just want to feel the Bible, like meditate on Psalms and kind of think about, oh, how does this make me feel? I want to sit by a stream or a burbling brook and just let, this, let my soul drink this in. There's a time and a place for all of us to do that. Other people want to go into a study and just get deep and use your head and think and think and think. How does this relate to that? And how does this relate to that? And how does this relate to that? I don't care how it makes me feel. I want to know what it says. Church family, we ought to do both. The Bible Project has a great um, some great teaching on this. I encourage you to go check out the Bible Project podcast and, and look at what they have to say to this. But we have to do both, church family. We have to read the Bible with both our heads and our hearts. We need a work to properly interpret God's word. See, if we lean too far to our hearts, we, we, we turn the Bible into meaning what we want it to mean or what we think it should mean. The Bible itself in Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all else. It cannot be trusted. So don't disconnect your head and your heart. And in fact, in the Bible, the head and the heart are a lot more connected than they are in our Western civilization. We've kind of disconnected the head and the heart. But the Bible actually puts these two together. They function together. And so we need to use both our head and our heart. We need to, properly, we need to work to properly interpret Scripture. This means exegesis versus eisegesis. Exegesis is when we try and figure out the original context, try and think through, okay, in the Old Testament... 
God is speaking to the Jewish people, to the Israelites in the midst of Babylon. If I'm reading the book of Jeremiah, that's where they are. That, that gives some, some shape and understanding to the context here and the culture that's going on. What is God's original intent? Asking questions like, what's the, what's the literary style here? Is this poetic? Is this allegory? Is this, is this history? Is this teaching? Should I interpret this? Should I interpret this literally or is this an allegory? Like there's a psalm that says that God collects our tears in bottles. Literal? I don't think so. I might find out when we get to heaven that God has a whole shelf full of bottles with tears. Some of you will have multiple shelves full of bottles and tears. Some of you will have like one drop, one teardrop in one bottle. I don't think that's literal. Because a lot of things in the psalms aren't literal. They're poetic. They're imagery. And so it helps if we're going to read God's word to use both our head and our heart to think through, what am I reading? What's the context? What's being communicated here? What was the original intent? If you're having problems figuring that out, get a study Bible. Go online, look at some commentaries, listen to some podcasts, ask your pastors and elders and community group leaders, and we will help you with that. But don't only engage the life of the mind. Don't only use your head, also engage your heart. And oftentimes, God's word, it'll it'll work like this. As you engage your mind, it'll flow into your heart. As you begin to think about what's being said here in its context, in its purpose, it'll begin to stir your heart with a greater affection for Christ. Don't divorce the two. Keep the two together. Thirdly, how should we read the Bible with zeal for application? Again, we live in the age of information. And so many of us, we want to know new things about the Bible. That's a, that's a good desire. Be careful, though, that you're not always filling your mind with new information, new facts, new, new theological ideas, new, new things that you've discovered about God's Word, but you're not applying the same old things that you know to be true, like love your neighbor, pray for your enemy, pray for those who persecute you, give your money to the poor, I'm going to brag on my kids a little bit. We were, just a couple weeks ago, after Christmas, they had got some cash for Christmas, and they were with me on two different times. Two different kids were with me on errands, and they had some cash. And we were leaving a store, and there was a homeless guy on the side of the street. And they said, Dad, we should give some money to him. And I said, I don't have any cash, but you do. <laughs> Convenient, right? Do you, want to, do you want to give? His name was Tim. Do you want to give Tim some of your cash or do you want to keep your cash to buy your thing? They didn't even hesitate. I want to give Tim some of my money. So he pulled over, rolled down the window, handed Tim some of Avery's cash. And you know what? In my mind is, go, you, you know that dialogue? Well, what's Tim going to do with this? Is this real? Is this one of those? I, read, I, I watched a news story about people who actually make a lot of money and then they, they, they like nightlight as, as uh, homeless people and they... I, I saw a news story a while back where a guy made over $100,000 standing on a street corner. And so that's where my mind goes, right? I'm like, well, let's see. If you, we could give Tim your $5, and Avery and I had this conversation. We could give Tim your $5, or we could put your $5 to an organization that we know is going to use it wisely. And there's a time and a place to have those conversations. But Avery's zeal was simply to apply the things that she knows about Jesus. Jesus loves the poor. Jesus loves the hurting. Jesus loves people who are caught up in deceit and lies. 
in the impulse of Avery's heart, and then I had the same exact conversation and situation with Judah a week later, the impulse of both of my kids' hearts, because faith like a child is what Jesus wants, the impulse of their heart was to give their money away because they had a zeal to apply the things that they know. Thank you, Avery and Judah, for teaching me what it's like to apply God's word. A zeal to apply. How often do we, do we just, and that's what I, what I man, I just, my, my friend Jordan has become, Pastor Jordan has become one of my dearest friends, and one of the things, uh, many things that I love about him, but one of the things that I love about him is just his zeal to apply. He has no formal theological seminary training. He's self-taught. He picked up the Bible, read Matthew, became a Christian after growing up in this kind of mixed Buddhism with a little bit of Catholicism life. He became a Christian, and he's like, I, I read the word, and this is what it says, and I want to go and do that. And I want to be around that kind of faith, not the kind of faith that has to take hours and hours and hours to try and figure out the little nuance here and then get in a theological debate and discussion and disagreement with another church about this versus that. And so, church family, when we read the Bible, we should read it with a zeal for application. Now, again, to engage the mind, we don't want to apply the wrong things and apply it wrongly. So again, don't divorce the head and the heart and the hands. Really, keep the three of those together. We read the Bible with our head and our heart and our hands, but we read it with a zeal for application. And I think that's missing specifically in Western Christianity. Look at these verses here. Just a simple reminder. And Jesus says to his followers, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not debate over what my commandments are. Should we keep them? Should we not keep them? When should we keep them? When should we not keep them? What is the Sabbath really? What does it mean to give to the poor really? Who's poor? Who's my neighbor? Do I really need to love this person or that person? What about this political party or that political party? What about this situation or that situation? No, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then James, the book that we're going to study starting next week, says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. How many Christians listen and listen and listen and podcast and podcast and podcast and read and read and read and attend church and attend church and attend church and they don't do a thing that Jesus tells them to do. Read the Bible with a zeal for application. Now lastly, when should we read the Bible? To get very practical, when should we read the Bible? You know the first one, right? It's in the morning. No, I'm kidding. For those of you who aren't morning person, people, when you should read the Bible, when, you should start by reading it when you're most alert. I have found, both my wife and I have found, I'm a morning person, she's not a morning person, but we would both say that in the morning is best for us because the Word of God has a way of waking you up and making you alert when your mind's not distracted, when your mind's not filled and cluttered with other things. But some of you, maybe you found that reading the Bible midday is really the best for you. Maybe afternoon or evening. If you're serious about the spiritual discipline, the spiritual practice of reading Scripture, figure out when you are most alert, when your head and your heart are most engaged, and carve that time out for God's Word. If it's 15 minutes, like, man, I am just on my game right there. Maybe rather than scheduling a meeting or going for a run, or doing your workout, or listening to your podcast, maybe you just pause and you, you open up God's word for those 15 minutes or that half an hour, and you let God's word inform you. Remember, it's sure, it's right, it's true, it's trustworthy, 
All of those things of Psalm 19, do you want that in your life? Read God's word when you're most alert. And don't be legalistic about it. If you're a morning person, don't expect everyone else around you needs to be a morning person. They might need to be encouraged and pushed to consider getting up earlier and giving God the first fruits of their day, the, the early part of their day before their mind's cluttered with other things. But be careful not to grow legalistic about that. Some people need to read scripture at night or later in the day. Maybe you, maybe you just need to listen to scripture as you go for a walk. Get the, the audio version of the Bible and let it fill your mind as you walk. Whatever it is for you, figure that out and do it. Secondly, when, you sh- when should you read the Bible? When you don't feel like it specifically. just want to encourage you that, that when you feel like, ah, I'm, it's, I'm in a boring section, maybe skip over the boring section. Not always, right? Sometimes plow through that boring section and allow God to illuminate it for you and make that section living and active. But maybe you skip over it. I don't know. Maybe you plow through it. But specifically when your flesh says, eh, it doesn't really have anything for me. It's not really doing it for me. Life is too busy. I have too many different things going on. I can't quite fit it in. Specifically in those moments, discipline yourself. That's why they're called spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices. Because discipline or practice means pushing through when we don't want to. Any, anyone who practices music or, or sports will tell you that you grow, you get better by pressing through those moments when you don't feel like doing that thing. And so, church family, when you don't feel like it, press through. And then lastly, we should read the Bible in community. Read the Bible in community. This is actually the primary way, the best way to read and apply the Bible. Because we are products of our time and our culture, so many of us have been been taught and raised to do our daily devotions, right? Do our personal devotions. Me and God, Open up my Bible and read. God, what do you have for me? What do you have for me? What do you have for me? So much so that when we read the you's in the Bible, we think it's a you to us. When really God is saying you to the community, to the church. When you read the book of Colossians and it says you, it's not saying you, it's saying you. Now, you can apply these things personally and individually, but they're written to a community, to the community of God. These letters from God, these instructions from Jesus are given to a community of people, and that's how they're best understood, that's how they're best applied. So be careful not to become too much a product of your culture and think, what is God saying to me? What is God saying to me? What does God want from me? Keep in mind, what is God saying to us? What does God want from us? How does this apply for me in the midst of us? This is why we gather or live stream and open up God's word because it makes most sense and it's most applicable in community. I can't tell you how many times people have gone astray because they've read verse and they're like, this is what God is saying to me and their entire community is saying, I don't think you're hearing that right. I don't think you're interpreting that right. And somebody goes astray because they're applying it to them individually rather than in the context of a community. So often when people leave the faith or they leave the church or they go off their, on their own, it, it's often, it has a, kind of this spiritual covering like, well, I was really reading and meditating my Bible and God wants me to go do this. And oftentimes they end up leaving or abandoning their faith because they take it out of community. 
And so church family, I encourage you as you read, do it in community. If you're not in community, pray that God would place you in community. Park Community Church, it's our middle name, right? Community. We exist to build communities of people reading and applying God's word together. And so find a way to do that. Lastly, as we close down this morning, we haven't been doing communion for the last couple weeks because it felt weird to do it virtually. So I'm glad to have you back here in the building. Those of you who are here, those of you who are at home, if you want to join us for communion, you can find something that resembles communion. It really doesn't matter. You can use whatever food and beverage you have there, but I'd invite you to join us in communion as we consider the application of God's word. And I want to flip to Luke chapter 24 and close down this sermon with you as we transition into communion and then singing the gospel. Luke chapter 24. Listen to how Jesus pairs kind of this idea of communion, his life given for us, with the necessary part of his word for his church family. Then Jesus said to them, the disciples, he said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything on the left side of the book, the entire Old Testament is written about him. The scriptures, Old Testament points us to the Messiah, New Testament shows us who this Messiah is. It's all about Jesus. The Psalms, the prophets, the commandments, they're all fulfilled in Jesus. Verse 45, he says, Then he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. That's ultimately what you need. As we read God's word, we need the Holy Spirit of God to open up our mind to understand these scriptures, that they would be living and active to us. Verse 46, and Jesus said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, that the Christ should suffer on the third day but rise from the dead. As we read the scriptures, that's what we're looking for. How does this point us to Jesus? How does this show us Jesus? How does Jesus grant us new life? And so as we gather as a church family, we read his word in community and we take communion as a community of faith. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, I invite you to grab the little communion packet in front of you. Pull off the top layer and take out the cracker, which symbolizes Jesus' body broken for us, as Jesus himself said that he would suffer on the third day. His body broken for you and I. Break the cracker and eat it in remembrance of him. And as a part of his body being broken for us, his blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. So peel off that next layer. And as you have the cup there, remember Jesus who shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. And as you read the scriptures this year, ask God to illuminate the Christ to you. Let's take together. Let me pray.
Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for opening our minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus, we thank you that you suffered on the third day, but you rose from the dead. I thank you that repentance and forgiveness of sins has been proclaimed to us, those living in a different country across the world from you 2,000 years after you lived, and in you we have new life. Lord, may you continue to breathe the breath of life, the word of God, the living and active truth into our lives on a daily basis. For your glory, for our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray. Amen.